I thought my mother or father would come get me and I would say thank you to my adoptive parents and I would go home. It was so powerful touching someone with my DNA. It was like divine spark in me that all of a sudden things made sense and I was real. That's the part of reunion a lot of people don't understand is that's just one moment of it. In my last interview, we talked about how expensive it was to adopt babies. In my interview today with Lorray, she explains that her experience defied the commonly held belief about all adoptees being adopted into rich families. When she asked the state of Tennessee for details about her birth and adoption, she was degraded just to get answers that people who aren't adopted may take for granted. Through her experiences of being adopted, searching for her birth family, and reuniting with some of them, she has used her voice on social media as the adopted chameleon to help others feel safe in speaking about their own trauma surrounding adoption. Lorray teaches Kundalini Yoga and will be presenting at the Untangling Our Roots Summit in Denver, Colorado in April of 2024. I have included links in the show notes for her website as well as Untangling Our Roots. Here is my interview with Lorray. Were you adopted from birth and where were you adopted from? Yes. Well, I was born at the University of Tennessee. I was a Baby Scoop era adoptee, and I was adopted at birth. I don't actually have any records the first month of my life, but I do know from my original birth certificate that I have now, that's where I was born. And uh, I do have a picture of me with adopted parents the month after I was born. So something happened in between. <laughs> that's crazy. Did you actually grow up in Tennessee? I did until I was, I think, 14, 14, I believe, 15, maybe, when we moved to Tulsa. And did you grow up with any other siblings in your adoptive family? No, I was an only child. That seems to be the case for a lot of adoptees, and that's really hard. Yeah, I don't know, though, if I would have rather had a sibling or not, because... If you think about it, if they adopt another child that you're not related to, then there's more people that you're not biologically related to that you're trying to form a relationship with. Or I've heard of adoptees that have the siblings, they're biologically related to the parents and they're not. And a lot of them say they always know. That's something that I've heard as well. Yeah. Do you remember how you found out you were adopted? You know, that was something I think my adopted parents did right because I always knew I was adopted. Now, here's the downside of that. I was adopted and it was never discussed. You know, it was just something that was. So they did it right by letting me know that I was always adopted and making it seem rather normal. But it was so normal that the feelings that I had didn't fit into the narrative what my adoptive parents believe to be true, though I couldn't have my feelings, if that makes sense, because it would hurt them. Right. So it was just basically like, you're adopted, and that's that. We're not going to go any further into it. Right. Right. You know, the family you had before is just gone. You know, you know it's, I like landed in their laps. I came out of an egg, or I was an alien just zoomed in, <laughs> being down or something. I just became there. Nothing before that. 
And they, like a lot of parents, believe you know, the baby's a blank slate and they won't have any memories or anything. But, you know, we know through human development that that's not true. That babies very much know who their mother is. And it's pre-verbal trauma when they're separated. We can't tell the baby that they're being put in with another family that loved them. They don't know that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned spending a lot of time when you were a child with like family friends and stuff who had a variety of backgrounds. Did you find that particularly confusing because you knew you were adopted? Yeah. And in my family, my first cousin, I had one first cousin that I was close to. She was actually my closest family member, but she was 20 years older than me. My father was a late in life child. So by the time he was born, his oldest brother already had children. So it was very strange. I never had grandparents, none. I had eight, but I never met one. And my first cousin was the exact same age as my biological mother. My second cousins really didn't have much to do with me. I don't know why. I guess they were in a different demographic financially than we were. My adoptive parents were poor, which is another misconception that everybody thinks that adoptees are adopted into these wealthy families and put in these better situations and given all these means and opportunities. No, 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 not true. I found later that both my biological mother and father had more means and opportunity, and I would have you know, had that, had I stayed in it, at least if I would have gone the same lines as all of my biological siblings. So my adopted family, I was nothing like another misconception. People think same race adoptees, you know, I was white, they were white, everything's cool, right? (laughs) (laughs) No. And, And anybody that's ever dated someone would know that no, or, you know, or just been around people. We're not alike and we don't always have that um, bonding, you know, that energy that goes together, you know, we're all of the same race doesn't mean we're going to like or feel comfortable around those people. Right. And, and I don't want that to sound negative to my adoptive parents. They are deceased, but they were wonderful people. But my dad was a Korean War vet. And my mother couldn't have children because of a forced hysterectomy. Hmm. And they never own trauma. So by being told, of course, back in the day, just go get yourself a baby, you know, it'll fix it. You know, if you can't have a baby, you just get a baby. And that goes along with just acting like people are replaceable or interchangeable. And they're not. And it's proven when you are in the families and you're nothing alike. There's not a chemistry there. There's no well, yeah, I'm like that too, you know, kind of thing. It's just kind of like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you're just in a room with people that you're family with that you're nothing like. And you're supposed to love them. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> it's a, you're course. not a commodity. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, we don't care if you like us or not. You love us now because we're your family. And you're like, but we're nothing alike. Yeah. So what made you want to find your birth family? I know you had mentioned that when you were a kid, you thought maybe they would come and get you. Yes. As a child, I thought the adoption thing was a whole mistake. (laughs) I really did. I was a naive child. I thought my mother or father would come get me and I would say thank you to my adoptive parents and I would go home. Yeah, this has to be a mistake because why wouldn't my mother want me? 
it just didn't register with me at all. I just kept going, well, I know I have my biological family. I could feel them. I felt like they were just on the other side of the veil, but I wasn't allowed to touch them. So I just focused on them a lot. And I found out now after reunion that, yes, a lot of those things that I felt, the synchronicities, they were all true. So mm-hmm. I was actually tapping into my family at that time. Was your adoptive family at all supportive of you trying to find your birth family? Well, yes and no. (laughs) Yes, they always said that they were supportive. Again, my adoptive parents were always like, yep, you're adopted. Everyone meets your family. It's all good. Now let's not talk about it. (laughs) So, you know, the words were there. The words were supportive, but the action was not. Yeah. So I guess they didn't really have any documents or anything that they could give you to help you when you did start to search? No, they didn't know who my birth mother was or anything. I don't even know if they had any kind of anybody even come into their home and check or anything. I don't know in Baby Scoop era if they even did that. They had nothing. Hmm. My parents, oh, and here's a funny thing is this was a lovely story that my adopted parents told me. And don't do this to your adopted children, please. They would tell me that they wanted a boy. You know, they couldn't have their own kids, so they were really wanting a boy. And one day they got a call from the adoption agency, and they said, hey, we've got a little girl available. And they were so excited to go, yes, we'll take her. And they thought that that was a great story. (laughs) I'm like going, wow. Let me see. You didn't get what you wanted, and then you really didn't get what you wanted, and then you took what you could get. Okay, got it. Thanks. It hits differently on this end. I know that they thought I was just so special and it was a gift from God, as they said, and I was chosen and all these miraculous things. But no, it was just what was available at the time. Yeah. So you were supposed to feel like lucky that the circumstances fell like they did and it was you that they got, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was divine intervention because my mother would always say, I prayed to God for you. And then when I prayed to God for my mother, it wasn't right. So it's like, who's praying for what, for what purpose? Because it wasn't for my best interest that someone was praying for me to be separated from my mother. Yeah. It's definitely different when you hear it from the perspective of the person being told. Mm Mm-hmm. So how did you actually find your birth family without any help? Well, in 1995, the state of Tennessee allowed adoptees to have their non-identifying information. (laughs) So I had to do what a lot of adoptees do and and say, hey, (laughs) can I have my information, please? And write this letter. And they said, yeah, we'll give you your non-identifying information for $150. At the time, I'm living in an apartment by myself, going to school and waiting tables and bartending. $150 might have been thousands to me, you know? I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Because, again, I didn't have parents that were paying for college or anything else. I, I was doing all this all by myself. So I had to tell them I didn't have that money, but I needed my information because, well, it's my information, right? Yeah. (laughs) me for wanting what's mine and other people kept people get for free you know unless they need a copy and then it's cheap but anyway I was put into this hardship place so I had to inform the state of Tennessee that I was poor 
and they made me prove it. So I had to humiliate myself, and they said, yep, you poor. And then they lowered the fee to $50. Gee, thanks, Tennessee. So I came up with the $50, sent it off, and proved who I was because I had to certify all of this and everything just to get my information. And some time passed by. I got a packet that said, the search has ended. Here is your non-identifying information. Now, the search had ended to me didn't mean anything. It didn't say we spoke with your mother and she doesn't want to meet you. That's not what I heard. I heard the search is ended. We can't find your mom. Good luck. (laughs) Here's what you can do to find her. And they gave me the information. That's what I thought. Because inside the packet, I did have the birth certificate with her name on it. Hmm. Some angel stuck it in there. Wow. Yeah. That's why I found her was because I had her name at that point. So you knew what her name was, and um, I believe you knew where she was at at that time? Yes. Uh, Now, the address at the time was Richmond, Virginia. The address was an old address, of course, but my adoptive cousin happened to be in Richmond, Virginia. And it was a really long, twisted tale of she ended up finding out that old address, where it was, and when she was there, somebody just started talking to her, just randomly, and told my cousin, that the woman that she was looking for owned her own business. Hmm. And so cousin was like, well, that's not far from here. Let's go to that business. And she walked into the business and saw my birth mother standing there. And she knew her instantly because she said we looked identical. Wow. Though she said she didn't need DNA or anything else because it was that apparent. She did not talk to her at her job. I want that to be clear. She was not invading woman's privacy in any way shape or form she contacted her at another time and asked if she could speak with her in private which she did talk to her in private unfortunately my birth mother said that if I even tried to find her she would get a restraining order because she didn't want her husband which was deceased that was a lie or her daughters my sisters to know Hmm. so you never got in contact with her yourself right No, my cousin, when she told me this, my brain did that protective thing and was like, well, that didn't happen. And it literally erased that memory until 2020. Did not have that memory again until 2020 when I was doing my healing. When it came back, I was like, I can't tell people exactly how this feels, but when your own mind, you don't have a memory and then it comes back and it comes back like you go, oh my God. How did I lie to myself all these years? Because that's what I did. I mean, I I couldn't handle the pain. The pain was too much. My brain went, that didn't happen. It literally erased it. And when it came back, I didn't think I would survive. Yeah, you probably like immediately felt sick and it was just, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, and I mean, I'm well, I'm still in therapy. (laughs) I probably will be for the rest of my life, but... Yeah, it was the mother wound, the primal wound, that they call it. And I just couldn't believe that my mother never wanted to meet me and ignored me my whole life. I mean, that's actual torture. If you look up, ignoring someone is a type of torture. And I did try to contact her after that. I had written some letters and I got a phone number once and left a voicemail or twice. And she did. She ignored me until she died in 2016. Wow, that's... So cold. I can't even imagine being able to do that. 
Were you able to actually get in touch with her daughters at some time? And were they able to give you like any insight about why that happened? Did they know about you? No, they did not know about me. I, in 2016, oddly enough, the same year my mother passed, was doing DNA because I was getting ready to go back in again. <laughs> I did 23 and Me first, and I got the test results, and all I see are a bunch of cousins. <laughs> I'm like, but these are the first people that I've ever been biologically connected to, so this is a big deal for me. You know, they may be second, third, cousins, whatever, potentially first. It's weird when you get into DNA and you don't know a lot about it. It's overwhelming. <laughs> Yeah. And, and so, you know, I was just trying to make sense of what all this was. And then, you know, looking at people's faces, because some people put pictures on, you know, 23andMe. But this lovely woman messaged me because in my little bio, I'd said, I'm an adoptee looking for my family. And this lovely woman said, hey, cousin. <laughs> and she was telling me about her family and stuff. And it was a huge disappointment because... It didn't sound anything like me, but she was lovely. I just, I was really drawn to her. So we just kept talking because we knew we were biologically related. So, you know, I think it was like every six months or so she messaged. And so it was a few times. And then she told me to do ancestry because she found out that she was adopted. Hmm. So the first person I met, (laughs) her DNA was an LDA which for people that don't know what that is, is a late discovery adoptee, someone that was lied to about being adopted. And now there's two of us on the search for our family. Do you think maybe the reason that you were drawn to her is because she was adopted? I mean, you didn't know, but do you think you felt that? I could have because I do have in my past (laughs) a story where I, I dated someone and I kept asking him if they were adopted. And later on in life, he came and found me at one of my jobs and told me he was an LDA. Wow. He was adopted. Yeah. That's and I crazy. kept asking him, I said, you sure you're not adopted? Because I always thought I was going to date my brother or something. Huh. And, you know, when you don't know, yeah. you know your family, that's a thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> thing. So I would always be on the lookout if <laughs> I was adopted because, anyway, I'm digressing. But <laughs> so now me and my cousin, we both know we're adopted. She does ancestry. She finds her biological father brother and stuff so I do ancestry and sure enough I'm related to all of everybody in her family they believe they know who my birth father is so I find his address last known address and write to him and hear nothing before that I had found my mother's obituary and in the obituary is where I found my sister's names on her side so I found them on social media and sent one of them because she was a professional photographer. She had her own email address. I sent her, I sent both of them a message through Messenger, sorry, first through Facebook and didn't hear for, I don't know, maybe a month. And that's when I went back and emailed because if you're not friends on Facebook, sometimes those Messenger messages don't go through. Right. Right. So I thought, well, okay, you know, don't give up hope yet. Mm -hmm. It's not over till it's over. I emailed and then I still didn't hear. So here I have, you know, a letter to my dad, (laughs) messages to my sisters, nothing. I already know my mother's ignored me all my life. I'm going down a deep, dark hole here. I mean, a deep, dark hole. I'm like, nobody wants you. (laughs) So that one hit. It was the first time I believe I had actually said something in the private adoption adoptee adoption facebook groups back when i first started i wasn't writing as the adopted chameleon 
I was uh, still holding it all inside and just reading about things in uh, private Facebook groups for adoptees. And from that, I realized I wasn't alone because I would literally see posts and comments that sounded exactly like things in my brain that I had never verbalized. So it was like either these people are reading my thoughts, literally, I mean verbatim, or we're all going through the same thing. That's when I started feeling not alone. But I was in that group that day going, boo-hoo, poor me, you know, none of my biological family wants me, everyone's ignored me, (laughs) da-da-da-da. These are kind of common for people that aren't in adoptee land. Unfortunately, this is kind of a thing that happens. And I had posted that that morning, that afternoon, I get a message from my biological sister saying that they had found the email and the messages. The email was in spam (laughs) and messages they didn't get. They had to go look for them. And they said, would you like to talk on Zoom that night? (laughs) So I had a heart attack, not really felt like one because yeah. I did have to sit down and catch my breath and my head was spinning and my heart was racing. And so, yeah, I had a, a moment. And when I regained composure, we set up the meeting for that evening. And that was the first time I saw anybody that looked like me. Wow. And I was 53 years old. So you said you guys looked alike. Did you have any other like mannerisms or anything that you guys shared? Any experiences that you've had in life that were parallel? Absolutely. Yes. We had many synchronicities, mannerisms, things we ate, our career paths, our thoughts, our music taste. I mean, so, so, so many. It was almost criminal that we were separated. Were they pretty close to your age? Like, had she had a family pretty soon after she gave you up? Well, oddly... In the process of reunion, the sister of mine that's a photographer, she also is the person that like takes care of all the archives of the family. And we were going through pictures and we found a picture of our mother and their father. It looked like they were at a party because they had cocktails and cigarettes in their hand and they were all standing around talking two months after I had been born. So it looks like she might have met him there or maybe she'd already known him, but that picture was taken with... You know, maybe they were looking at each other differently moment, hmm. but that was two months after I was born. So have you met your half-sisters in person, and what was that like the first time? <sighs> yes, I have two sisters on my mother's side, and yes, I have met both of them. They came here to see me first, and again, I'd never touched anyone with my DNA or, you know, been around anyone with my DNA in my life. We met at a restaurant in downtown and we walked up, we hugged each other. And (laughs) I still get emotional talking about this moment because it was, it was so powerful touching someone with my DNA. It was like divine spark in me that all of a sudden things made sense and I was real. (laughs) I hadn't been just dropped on this planet from nowhere. I did come from somewhere. I was real. (laughs) In that moment, I was real. And the electricity shot through me. I didn't want that moment to ever end. I wish it wouldn't have because that's the part of reunion a lot of people don't understand is that's just one moment of it. Yeah. Much, much, much more to it. And now one of my sisters no longer talks to me. 
and I do have a relationship with one. I also found out I had a sister on my father's side, and I've met her. We're not really close, but she's a lovely woman, and she did accept me, so I thank her for that. She's very busy. We're Facebook family. She does laugh at my jokes, so that's cool. <laughs> you know, it's fine. It, it is what it is, and it's fine. So how did you figure out who your birth father was? I know your non-identifying information for him was, like, extremely vague. Yes, very vague. You know, he was like six foot one, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, mm. <laughs> college student, da, 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 you know. I was like, well, that narrowed it down. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no problem there. But luckily, through the cousin in the DNA with her father, her father grew up with my father. And through the description and the school and the age, they said it has to be him. So they told me who they thought it had to be in the family. You know, they were like, there's really only a couple of people it could have been. And the other person, I had contacted his brother, and he said it couldn't be his brother because it, it couldn't. So, <laughs> physically impossible. So, I was like, uh. okay, that narrowed it down. So, the letter, the letter was sent to his house, and I had the right address. This is what's really strange is I had the right address. It sat there for almost a year, apparently. He had had a stroke and almost died. And had been put in a nursing home. His wife had dementia. She was in a different home. And he wasn't supposed to live. When they found him, they said, if we don't do something now, he's gone. And they contacted his daughter. And she said, we'll resuscitate him. And they did. They got him back. Hmm. Had he died then, I would have not met either parent. My sister that didn't know me brought him back from the dead to meet me. She didn't know that at the time. But that's what she did for me. And that's why I think the letter sat there for a year, because had I found him then, he would have been almost a vegetable. He had a lot of therapy to go through in a year to be able to speak to me. And that's what happened. The woman that found it was his stepdaughter. She found the letter, contacted me, and was like, are you still looking for this man? And I said, yes, I am. And I explained why to her. And she was like, oh, my God, okay, I'm going to get you to him. She told me the whole story, you know, that he'd had a stroke, he's in a nursing home, that's why he didn't respond. And I was like, oh, okay, he's, he's alive. <laughs> She's like, yeah, yeah, he's fine. So she told me who his daughter was. I contacted her, the stranger, <laughs> and said, hey, could you do some DNA? <laughs> you know, because that's what people do all the time. Hey, yeah. you want to do a DNA test with me? Yeah, it's fun. Good times. People don't realize the conversations that adoptees have to have and be fearless in these conversations because they are not easy conversations to have. Ask a stranger to do DNA. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> my heart was racing. My palms were sweating. I thought I really was going to have a heart attack just going through the conversation. Luckily, like I said, she's a very kind woman. And she said, sure, I'll do that. And she said, I do not have a relationship with my dad, but I'll do that for you. And I was like, thank you. That's very kind of you. And it came back and she was like, I don't know what this means. And I said, well, that means we're sisters. Mm. <laughs> we got the results. So I, I did meet her too. She met me. Her and her husband met me. They're, like I said, very nice people. And I have been to my dad's nursing home two times now because I've only known two years. So, yeah, once a year I go over there, fly to North Carolina and go see him in his nursing home. The nursing home sets up uh, Zoom calls because he can't really hold a phone. Uh, you know, one of his arms doesn't work well and he's blind in one eye and part of his leg's gone. He's, a, he's also a war vet, so he had a lot before 
the stroke, but he's cognitive. It's just, it's difficult. It's not like a conversation like we're having. Right. So he's able to talk to you, but you may not be able to ask him some of the questions that you would have. Right. He definitely remembered my mother because when I went to meet him the first time, I had pictures of her Hmm. with me and I handed them to him. And the look on his face, you could tell that, yeah, that was his college honey. (laughs) He, He lit up when he saw her face. And did he know that you had been born? No. Oh. No. And here's the sad part. People always assume that adoptees are given up because they're unwanted and don't have family. Well, I had his whole family. No one told any of them. They didn't know. They were never even given the opportunity to raise me because they never knew about me. And from what I was told, his mother, which was the matriarch of the whole family, would have definitely kept me. And she had a lot of means and opportunity, so it would have been no problem. Hmm. And they said because of the woman that she was, she wouldn't have taken any shit about it at that time either. She would have been like, this is what's happening and none of your business. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because it was the 60s, there's the baby scoop era, and, you know, evangelicals would never let an unwed mother have a child, God forbid, you know. But they said that my grandmother was very much, even though she was Christian, was not going to put up with that kind of shit. Well, good for her. But unfortunately, she did not get that opportunity. And I, from everything I've heard about her, I've missed out on a lot. So how long has it been since you've been in contact with your birth families? And do you feel like the relationships have lived up to your expectations? (laughs) Ooh, that's a question. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Expectations uh, were, no, none of my expectations were met because I assumed that my mother would want to know me. And I found out in in 2020, I contacted the state of Tennessee and said, anything else you got in those packets back there about me you want to give me? Because I have a feeling you got something else. And they said, oh, yeah, we have more stuff, but uh, it's going to cost you 250 this time. And I was like, damn, state of Tennessee. Inflation. <laughs> and this time I had to pay the 250 because I had it, unfortunately. <laughs> but they made me pay $250 for the rest of my information in my packet. There wasn't much because there was no real records of me after I was born, except I was fed once. And I found out in there that there was a letter from my grandmother. They had talked to her, and she knew I was looking. So I had a grandmother that knew about me, and my mother knew about me, and they didn't tell anybody. Hmm. And I could have met a grandparent. had At that time, they would have accepted me back, or not rejected me at least, at least talked to me. I could have looked at a grandmother. I would have gotten to see at least one grandparent. Yeah. You wonder where the fees come from, too. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, they're printing it off, you know? It doesn't cost that much. They charged me 25 cents for each piece of paper. I forgot to mention that. Ah. In 1985, they charged me 10 cents for each piece of paper. But this time, they charged me a quarter for each piece of paper plus the fee. That's crazy. That is so crazy. Yeah, adoption's fun. It's just fun. That's sarcasm, people. That's not real. It is not fun. So expectations, no. No grandparent, no mother. Father never knew about me. Didn't need to be adopted. So the expectations here were really building up to, wow, this was uh, not right. Happened to you. It was not right. And again, nothing against my adoptive family because they were just told, go get a baby. They were lied to also. Yeah. They died with trauma, too, by the way, because they never got help for their trauma. 
Mm. Had they gotten help for their trauma, they would have been happier people, even if they didn't ever get the baby they wanted. And that's the truth of the situation. We have to get help for our own trauma. Babies are not Band-Aids. You don't use babies to help your medical condition. It's not going to fix it. It's only going to make more issues. You can't love trauma away. And that's what my parents thought they could do. And that's one of the things that they would say that would literally shut me down. And this one's going to sound weird, but my mother, if something was wrong, because I was angry a lot and I didn't know why. And she'd be like, why are you so angry? Don't you know we love you? Well, what am I supposed to say after that? Yeah. So literally when I was young, that was it. That was the end of the conversation because I was angry and there was something wrong with me. I'd already been given away. I'm already having weird thoughts. God's already against me. You know, (laughs) what am I supposed to do? I was alone in this situation, even though I had loving adopted parents, (laughs) you know, that's the whole point of this, why we talk, because people think, well, we're just ungrateful and angry. Well, anger is a normal emotion to what has happened. So I should have been allowed to have it and I shouldn't have been alone in it. And that's why I'm now getting the help that I need instead of them not getting it when they needed it. So how do you think your life has changed having gone through this process? Do you feel like you at least know a little bit more about your identity? Yes. I mean, some things have been answered. At least I know why I like a lot of the things I like and I act the way I do. And like I said, being angry, at least I know why I'm angry now. And that's a big relief. And knowing it's a normal feeling, that's even better relief. The first time a therapist looked me in the eyes and said, well, anger is just a normal feeling for what you went through. And she just said it just like that. And I was like, what? I was like, yeah, that's normal. She was like, if you weren't at least a little angry, I would have probably been a little bit more concerned. And I was like, oh, my God, you mean I was feeling a normal feeling all my life and people were blaming me for it? Yeah. (laughs) So having someone that can understand that and allow you to feel the feelings that you have is very important. And that's something that I've learned. I do have a good therapist now and I can talk to her and we do EMDR. We've done parts therapy. I'm a Kundalini yoga instructor and I'm also a certified trauma-informed yoga therapist, yoga therapy, and I'm a Reiki master. So through my own trauma, learning how to heal myself and to integrate the trauma, I have taught myself how to help heal other people so it's part of the process and now I can speak to others from my own lived experience and not let them feel alone that's amazing you kind of answered this question but what would you tell other people who are going to start looking for their birth family I would tell them to definitely talk to people that have done it don't dive in head first like I did Unless you're just that kind of person, you just want to do it. But I would definitely have a support system. Make sure that you're going to have some time for yourself also, because it will be a process. You're probably going to have every emotion hit you at the same time. And you're going to be happy, sad, angry, joyous. I mean, it's going to be a roller coaster ride probably for a while. Your nervous system is probably going to dysregulate and you might even be questioning your own reality at some points. And definitely the system of which you got adopted into, that might make you really, really angry. So 
have that support system, other adoptees, a therapist, family members, whatever your support system looks like for you. But I would definitely get with people that have gone through it and know it so that you can talk to them. I have a group called Adopted Chameleons on Facebook, and it's for all MPEs, which is Misattributed Parental Event. So it's adoptees, former foster kids, donor conceived, non-parental events. Those are NPEs, which are people that find out usually through DNA that their family member wasn't their family member, usually a dad. So I have a group there and we get to vent. We get to in private away from, well, there's like a thousand people in there. So wow. it's not private, private, but it's people that understand the situation. So you've been pretty active in social media for the past couple of years as the adopted chameleon. Can you yes. tell me a little bit more about how it's been connecting with other adoptees? And do you have any events coming up that you're involved in? Uh, yeah, actually, I am going to be presenting at Untangling Our Roots Summit in April of 2024. I also do online yoga classes every Wednesday and Sunday to for anyone. It is trauma-informed yoga, so it's a little different. I have different classes in person and online. My website has all that information on it, LeraeGerald.com. Writing as the Adopted Chameleon has been a huge education and a test of patience in compassion too because everybody's story is different but everybody's traumatized and some people are angry and they're lashing out and that's normal we have to understand and not take it personally they're trying to get it out the best that they can I've read some of my things and they sound a lot angrier in the past than maybe now it's a process just give people that space and I definitely recommend listening if you're new to this environment, anything in adoption land, listen to the people that have lived the experience, the adoptee, the birth parents, the people that have actually separated and for other people to have a family. And the adopted parents, I don't want to discount them, but a lot of them say that we experienced it too, but they experienced it way differently than we did. They didn't have to lose their whole family and identity to become a family. Right. They kept everything intact and that's the difference so I'm not disregarding them but they just have to understand that they experienced it from a way different perspective and to please listen to our perspective when we're talking about it because we're going to learn from each other if we do that so that's the number one thing is when you read something and it upsets you ask why it's triggering yourself go into that part and see what's going on within yourself don't attack the other person you can calmly discuss things without calling people names, right. <laughs> which is something that happens a lot. I've been called every name in the world. I've had people basically death threats and, you know, tell me I should have been aborted and oh. how horrible of a human being I am because I'm telling my story from my perspective. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and it bothers them that much. Yeah. So that's what I remind people. If something is bothering you that much, it's you. You need to go inside and see which part of you is upset. Maybe it's you because <laughs> mm -hmm. it is <laughs> right and like you said there's groups for everyone so if you find that a group has things in it that bother you then maybe that's not the group for you yeah. yes and even in the healing process therapist you know you have to find the therapist that you can trust and talk to not everyone is going to like the same therapist it's personal so 
find the person that's going to help you, the group that's going to help you, the people that resonate with you. Adoptees or anyone, anyone with trauma is going to need cognitive therapy and somatic therapy. If you aren't moving your body, the trauma is just going to stay stuck and you're just going to be repeating the same stories over and over and over again until you really get in there and talk to the parts, break them apart and move it out. You have to move your body. It doesn't have to be yoga. You don't have to come to my class, but find the people that resonate with you. What works for you? I hope that people do come and try my yoga. I try to be aware of trauma at all times when I'm teaching so that everyone's comfortable. And that's why I do it on Zoom as well as in person, because a lot of people will never walk into a yoga studio. It's too overwhelming. So on Zoom, they can do it in the privacy of their own home. And in my classes, I just ask people to everybody come on the screen at first so we know they're humans. And then they can drain off. They don't even have to let anybody even see them while they're exercising. We have to feel safe while we're healing. And we have to feel safe. That's part of healing. If you're not in that root chakra, that safety, that security, if you haven't gotten there yet, you can't move up. You have to feel safe to thrive. Yes, that's definitely true. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Thank you so much for having me. I truly appreciate it. And for giving people space. You're helping allow us to tell stories in safe spaces. So thank you. or someone in your family has been touched by adoption and would like to speak about it, please email me at whathappensafterpodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out the Instagram for the show to see pictures of my guests that they were so kind to share from the reunions. On the next episode, I'll talk with Lynn, an adoptee who spent her career as an adoption worker. Listen next time to find out what happens after. Thanks for listening.